I want to ask all of you to turn to two passages that we'll look at um, right in a row here for our introduction this morning. Turn to Hosea 6 and then Romans 5. So you just put a finger in both those places. Hosea 6 and Romans 5. I think Pastor Kimbrough last week uh, did a Sunday school lesson on separation from false teachers. Is that correct? Yep, okay. That's good. I think he's trying to weasel himself out of being a heretic. (laughs) Divert attention. Separate from those bad people. So, in church, uh, we, we often use terminology that we think and we assume that everyone understands. There was an Irish playwright named George Bernard Shaw, actually won a Nobel Prize for Literature, and he said this. He said, the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. And I think that's something that we can all relate to. I think maybe it could be illustrated just in a simple relationship with husbands and wives. You can talk about something and you assume that you have communicated only to find out later that the person listening to you heard a very different thing than what you were trying to say. The person listening perhaps interpreted tone more more than they interpreted words, or you were trying to emphasize tone, but yet the person didn't hear tone, they only heard words, and therefore really just completely misunderstood what was being said. We often talk past one another, Or we speak in ways that, while it might make perfect sense to us, the person we're talking to really doesn't understand anything that's being said. Sometimes the reason for that is the content, the subject matter. The person you're talking to just doesn't understand the subject matter. So I could go into a kindergarten classroom and I could start talking to a group of kindergartners about quantum physics, and they wouldn't have any earthly idea what I was talking about. I wouldn't have any earthly idea what I'm saying, but they wouldn't have any earthly idea what I'm talking about. They don't have any context. They don't have any previous background to understand that. Sometimes it's simply a matter of vocabulary. We can use words that we understand and we assume our audience understands, while the whole time the audience is shaking their head and pretending to understand, and they don't. I played a joke on Bonnie several years ago. I was teasing her about her love of organic vegetables. And so she was telling me how great organic vegetables were, or are, and they probably are. But I told her that I had read an article that said that the government had recently approved the use of dihydrogen monoxide on organic farming, in organic farming. And I said this dihydrogen monoxide is actually one of the main ingredients in paint and also one of the main ingredients in household cleaners. 
And scientists have also found dihydrogen monoxide in the Yadkin River. And the government has approved this on organic vegetables. And she just shook her head and she said, I know, I'm not surprised. The government, they approve all kinds of stuff that's bad for us. And so I had to tell her that I was teasing and explain to her that dihydrogen monoxide is just H2O or water. It's just another way of saying, it's a confusing way, obviously, of saying water. But dihydrogen monoxide, you know, that's just a silly way of saying something that is very plain. And so we can be silly and say things in very confusing ways on purpose, like I did, or we can really try to be serious in our communication but yet use words that our audience doesn't understand. And so our topic this morning is going to be covenant theology. Covenant theology. Now, I give all that lead in because one of the things that I asked a group of people not long ago, I was talking to them about this series of Sunday school lessons and this kind of big series of what does it mean, And I said, I'm really interested in things that maybe somebody would be too embarrassed to admit that they don't understand. Like things that we talk about so often and words we use all the time and everybody just kind of nods and agrees and nobody's brave enough to say, I don't know what you're talking about. Because you think, you perceive that everybody else understands, and you're like the one guy that doesn't understand, and so you don't want to admit that, and you wouldn't ask, what, what is covenant theology? What, what are we talking about? Because everybody assumes you know too. And so in the talking of it, how many people are lost? How many people really have no idea? And so I've done a little survey, and I've asked some people, and... I find that a lot of people don't know. So here we go. What is covenant theology? And so that's what I want to deal with. And we'll end up dealing with it today, and then we'll probably go two more lessons after today um, on this one subject of covenant theology. So let's start by defining some terms. If we're going to talk about something that's perhaps confusing, well, we need to define our terms. Covenant theology is two words. I think the word covenant is fine enough. A covenant, uh, I'll give you one definition. This is kind of an academic definition, but a very substantive definition as far as what a covenant is, at least from a biblical perspective. And so this comes from a a man named O. Palmer Robertson. If you want to study covenant theology more deeply, the, the book, like the classic book that I would recommend to you, is by him, O. Palmer Robertson, and the title of the book is The Christ of the Covenants. So anyway, early on in his book, he defines a covenant this way. He says, a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. So that's kind of the definition. A a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Well, that needs some explanation itself. So he goes on, and he says, when God enters into a covenant relationship with men... He sovereignly institutes a life and death bond. A covenant is a bond in blood, or 
a bond of life and death sovereignly administered. So that's how he defines that term covenant. Well, theology is simply the study of God, right? So you have geology, that's the study of rocks, biology, the study of life, zoology, the study of animals, theology, the study of God. Theos, the Greek word for God, and then the ology part, really from the word logos, but the study of God. So if we put that together, covenant theology, very, very simply defined, would be this. It's the study of how God has sovereignly administered covenants in Scripture. So that would be a very, very basic definition of covenant theology. It's the study of how God has sovereignly administered covenants in Scripture. Now, we need more explanation than that. But let's still park here for just a little bit about our definition of terms. So when I say covenant theology, a lot of people will immediately think of maybe some synonyms for that. And so one that is almost immediately brought up is Reformed theology. And so here's a question. Is covenant theology and Reformed theology the same thing? It's not the same thing. You either know that or you're a good guesser. (laughs) One of the two. But that's okay, either way. She's very, very smart. Right, so... Covenant theology and Reformed theology. I phrase the question in such a way to purposefully be misleading, to make you think. Right? Is it the same? Well, what about Calvinism? Is covenant theology the same thing as Calvinism? Is Reformed theology the same thing as Calvinism? Well, so now I've, I've mentioned several different terms here. Reformed theology and Calvinism would be legitimate synonyms one for another. Calvinism is Reformed theology. Reformed theology is Calvinism. Now, how does covenant theology fit in that? Well, covenant theology is not the same thing as Calvinism. And also, covenant theology is not something that's unique to Presbyterians. It's also not necessarily unique to Reformed churches. Calvinism is real. I'm sorry, covenant theology is really not necessarily the same thing as Reformed theology. Because there are some people who would identify themselves as Calvinists. They would say, I am a five-point Calvinist. But yet they would reject the hermeneutical framework of covenant theology. Now I just used another big word, hermeneutical. Who knows what hermeneutical means? What does that mean? What is hermeneutics? Anybody? No. That's homiletics. Hermeneutics is the science of interpreting Scripture. Right. Hermeneutics is how we interpret the Bible. So, this is very, very general. There are basically... In anybody that you meet that goes to church, there are basically two hermeneutics. There are flavors of each one, but there are basically two. There is a covenant theology hermeneutic, and what would the other one be? 
a dispensational hermeneutic. Okay. So basically those two exist. There are flavors of those, but those are the two basic hermeneutic frameworks in which basically everybody you know that goes to church is going to be in one of those two main camps. Okay. So the covenant theology really is a hermeneutical framework of understanding scripture. So that's defining terms. Let's move on to another point here, and that would be how to explain covenant theology. How do we, how do we explain this? Covenant theology is a method of understanding and explaining the unity and cohesive message of the entire Bible and the unified way that God has dealt with mankind since the beginning of time. Now, I'm reading that from my notes here because I want to, I, I typed this very specifically. This isn't copied from anybody, but I typed this very specifically because I think the words here are all very important. Covenant theology is a method of understanding and explaining the unity and cohesive message of the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and of understanding and explaining the unified way that God has dealt with mankind since the beginning of time. That's what covenant theology is interested in. Now, dispensationalism, on the other hand, is a method of understanding and explaining the Bible and the different ways that God has dealt with mankind during different periods of time. You see they're very different. It's not that a dispensationalist rejects the unity of Scripture. They do see an aspect of the unity of Scripture, but they see a difference in the way that God has dealt with men throughout human history. God has dealt with different groups at different times in different ways. Covenant theology rejects that and says, no, there is a unified way that God has dealt with all of humanity from the beginning of time. And so we do believe that the Bible is a cohesive book and it prevents it it prevents it presents one unified message from cover to cover. There is a unified, cohesive message of Scripture. And that message is really best understood in the framework of what we call covenant theology. Taking all the pieces of the puzzle together we come to these conclusions that fit very nicely into this framework, this hermeneutic, this method of interpretation that we call covenant theology. And so, at its very foundation, what covenant theology teaches is that since the beginning of time, God has dealt with the entire human race through two men. That, that's the most simplistic foundational part of what covenant theology is. God has, from, from the beginning of time, dealt with everybody that's ever lived on planet Earth in two men. So, in the Garden of Eden, God made a covenant with Adam. After the fall, God, and be very careful with this, after the fall, God set in motion a covenant that he had already made 
in the Trinity. And I'll explain more of that here in just a minute. So turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Look at a verse here. Oh, I had you turn to Hosea, and I never read the verse. I got all started in my introduction. We'll come back to that. <laughs> turn to 1 Corinthians 15 first. We'll look at all three of these verses together. We can fit these. We can make these go together here. So 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse number 22. So this is covenant theology. Okay, If, if you understand this verse, you understand covenant theology. It says, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And so it mentions Adam and it mentions Christ. Those are the two men that God has dealt with. Everybody else is dealt with either in Adam or in Christ. There is no third option. It's one of those two representatives that you have. So let's go back to the verse in Hosea and look at this um, aspects of, of covenant here. And also keep that in Romans, Romans 5. So Hosea 6, verse number 7, really just the first part of the verse is what we are concerned about. So if you're looking at a King James Bible, you're looking at this. But they, like men, have transgressed the covenant. So who has another version that doesn't use the word men there? What do you have? ESV. Yep, and it says what? Um. Right. So the ESV, um, the New American Standard, I believe, also does this. They translate that word men with the actual Hebrew word that's there. Uh, the Hebrew word is not plural. The Hebrew word is the word Adam, Adam. Um, and so it really says, but they, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant. I don't want to get onto the, the exegesis of this particular verse and get down a rabbit hole on here. But let's just think about this from a logical point of view here. But they have transgressed the covenant. Okay? That's, that makes perfect sense. But they have transgressed the covenant. So we have a simile here, right? You remember English class? A simile is a comparison using like or as. But they, like elephants, have transgressed the covenant. Now this makes no sense, because God never made a covenant with elephants. But they like dogs, but they like animals. So to say, but they, like men, have transgressed the covenant, really is a redundancy. It's an unnecessary redundancy. How else would they have transgressed it? What, what, like what else could they have transgressed it? They couldn't have transgressed it like an animal because God never made a covenant with an animal. And so to translate it this way, but they like men have transgressed the covenant gives a unnecessary redundancy. And I think redundancies are always by definition unnecessary, right? So the word Adam here in the translation really is the force of what is being communicated. Adam transgressed the covenant. His descendants came along 
and also transgressed the covenant like Adam did. Adam transgressed it first, and all of his descendants since have also transgressed that same thing. So they, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant. So now I'll go over to Romans 5. Romans 5 fleshes this out some more. Look at verse number 19. This is the key verse to pay attention to here. Romans 5.19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So who is that one man's disobedience? It's Adam, right? Adam is the one who originally disobeyed. Adam sinned. Adam fell and caused the fall of all of humanity. We call that original sin. So by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So who is that? That's Christ. Okay, so, so we have these two individuals that stand in focus separate from the rest of humanity. So it's not that by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by a bunch of people's obedience, a bunch of people's individual obedience, they end up being made righteous. It doesn't say that at all. The focus is on two individual people. So that is why we say that at the very foundation of covenant theology is that from the beginning of time, God has dealt with the entire human race through two men. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. So when you come to the end of your days and you stand before God on the day of judgment, you will be found either in Adam as your representative head, you will be represented by Adam as condemned under sin, or you will be represented in Christ, holy and justified. One of those two men will serve as your representative head. And so that really is the sum and substance of what covenant theology is getting at. And the rest of Scripture, the entire rest of the Bible, is fleshing out that story. It is... It is filling in all the gaps and details of what it means to be in Christ, who is this Christ, or what it means to be in Adam, and what are the consequences of rejecting God and continuing on to pursue sin. And so that's the story of the Bible. And so in the next two weeks, what I want to do is trace God's covenants with his people throughout the Old Testament primarily um, and into the New Testament and understand how these covenants work. And I'll, I'll mention that a little bit more when we get to the end of today. So, covenants. What are the covenants in covenant theology? How many covenants are there? So that's a question we have to, to deal with. And so, if we start thinking about various covenants, sometimes we start thinking about the fact that God made a covenant with Noah, and so there's a rainbow. God made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with Moses. God made a covenant with David. And then Jeremiah talks about this thing called a new covenant. And then if we rewind and go all the way back to the beginning, 
God made a covenant with Adam. So we have an Adamic covenant, a Noahic covenant, an Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, and then this thing that Jeremiah refers to as a new covenant. So that's six. So are there six covenants? And the answer is no, there aren't six covenants. But yes, of course, there are six covenants. But there's not six covenants. Do what? They all say the same thing, right. There really are two covenants. And so as you study covenant theology, basically all of the theologians um, put everything down into two. Some, some do three. Um, R.C. Sproul, for example, if you read R.C. Sproul on covenant theology, you'll find that R.C. Sproul speaks of three covenants. What he says makes sense, and what he says is, is not wrong, but two of the ones that he talks about are really just the same manifestation of the same one. And I'll show you what I mean by this here uh, as we go forward. So the two covenants are the covenant of works. That's almost always how it's referred to, the covenant of works. And the other one is referred to as the covenant of mercy. Now, what R.C. Sproul does when he talks about it, he doesn't use the term covenant of mercy. The covenant of mercy is, think of a coin and two sides of the same coin. The covenant of mercy contains what we call the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace. And so if you read somebody like R.C. Sproul on this, R.C. Sproul will talk about the covenant of redemption and then he will talk about the covenant of works, and then he will talk about the covenant of grace, and he does it in that order. And other theologians do the same thing. And, and they're doing that for a decent enough reason, but I think it's better to understand two covenants, the covenant of works and the covenant of mercy. And the covenant of mercy contains the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace. Let me explain what I mean. So, let's talk about the covenant of works first. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. So, when we talk about a covenant, a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. That's O. Palmer Robertson's definition. And what we're doing in covenant theology is we're trying to understand how God has communicated to us how he administers those bonds in blood. How he sovereignly administers those bonds in blood. And so the covenant of works, let's look at this one first. With a covenant, you really need four parts to a covenant. And so as we study covenant theology through scripture, as we go through the Noahic, the Abrahamic, we'll look at all those parts later. All four of these parts are there. So one, you have to have parties, more than one party, two parties, you, can't, you don't make a covenant with yourself. You, you, you're dealing with somebody. So parties, you have to have a promise. You have to have a condition. And then you have to have a penalty. Those four things are necessary for there to be a covenant. So let's look at Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. Here is the Adamic covenant. Okay, this, is the, this is the first covenant that God made with humanity. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man. Okay, so there you have two parties. 
The Lord God commanded the man, saying, and here's the promise, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge and good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. There's the promise. Got all these trees, you can eat from all of them you want to, except for this one. So there's the promise. Here's the condition. For in the day that you eat of it, here's the penalty. Thou shalt surely die. So there are the four parts. There's parties, God and man. The promise is, here's all these trees. You're welcome to eat from it, but don't eat from this one. The condition is, if you eat from that one, the penalty is, you will die. So there's the first covenant that God made with humanity. Made it with Adam. Now, very careful. Look at verse 18. In verse 18, God said that it's not good for what? The man to be alone. Well, he was alone. Okay, so when God made this covenant with Adam, Eve was not on the earth. Eve had not been created yet. God had not put Adam to sleep yet. God had not taken his rib and, and fashioned Adam yet. This covenant was made with Adam as the representative head of the rest of the human race. And so the terms of this covenant really were quite simple. Adam represented all of humanity. Now, some look at this and they say, well, how can this be a covenant when it's really just unilateral? Adam never agrees to this. Adam never assents to this. God just tells Adam the way it's going to be. And so those that would oppose covenant theology, that is one of their main arguments. Well, this isn't a covenant because we don't see in the Bible Adam participating in this, like agreeing with this. Like, right, you buy a house, right? You go down to the bank and you're entering into a covenant with the bank. So you've got two parties. And the bank says, you can have this house so we won't take it away from you. That's the promise. The condition is you have to pay this every month for 30 years. And the penalty is if you don't pay this every month for 30 years, we're going to take your house away. Right? So that's a covenant. Same thing. Right? Well, the bank and I participate in that. I agree with the bank. Right? We, we, there's communication back and forth. Well, with this, the argument is, well, Adam is forced into this. Now, as covenant theologians, I'm not calling myself a theologian, but as someone who believes covenant theology, we step back from that and say, very simply, what else could Adam have done? And to say it a different way, what else would Adam have wanted to do? And if you come to any other answer other than, well, Adam obviously wanted to do what God told him to do. If you say that Adam objected to this, then that triggers the first sin. And that wasn't the first sin. Adam's rebellion against the covenant of works was not the first transgression. The first transgression was the eating of the forbidden fruit. He did not disagree. He did not fight against the terms of that covenant. He broke the covenant, sure. Right, of course, he broke the covenant. But he did not object to the terms 
of that covenant. And so from that perspective, we understand that Adam was a willing participant in this covenant relationship. He agreed with the terms of that covenant. He knew and he understood the terms of that covenant. And that makes the eating of the forbidden fruit an even more heinous thing because it became a willful disobedience to the covenant that God had made. Eve was deceived into eating the forbidden fruit. But Adam took of it willfully and did eat. It was a willful disobedience. So that's the covenant of works. Do this and live. Do the other thing and die. That's the covenant of works. Now, the covenant of mercy. We've got five minutes. The covenant of mercy. Now, the covenant of mercy was a covenant that existed before creation. It existed before the fall. It existed before Adam. This covenant of mercy is divided into these two. I told you the covenant of redemption, the covenant of grace. The covenant of redemption is really a covenant inside the Trinity. So Psalm 2 speaks of this. Ask of me and I will give you the heathen for your inheritance. There's part of our understanding of that covenant of redemption. We won't go farther here, but just leave it at this for right now. The covenant of redemption is between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So there are parties. God the Father chose to save a people. God the Son agreed to save those people by fulfilling the covenant of works that Adam broke. He agreed to save those people by fulfilling the covenant of works on behalf of those elect, and he agreed to pay the penalty for their having broken that covenant of works. Thou shalt surely die. So that's the Son's part. The Spirit agreed to apply the work of the Son's redemption to all those that the Father elected to save. And so all three persons of the Trinity are involved in that covenant of redemption. And so that's why we say the covenant of mercy is two parts. There's a covenant of redemption that is inside the Trinity. The covenant of grace is the communication and the application of the covenant of redemption to the elect. So that's why R.C. Sproul deals with the covenant of redemption first, because it came first. God, with Christ, agreed to save a people. We've dealt with this in other Sunday school lessons a long time ago. Infrared, superlapsarianism, that's what we're talking about. God agreed to, to save a people. God created a people, and in creating the people, permitted the fall, the breaking of the covenant of works, and then set in place the covenant of grace. Does that make sense? People understand. Okay. So that's why R.C. Sproul deals with it in that order. Redemption works grace. We deal with it a different way, covenant of works. The covenant of redemption already existed, and then was put in place, communicated to humanity, 
under the rubric of the covenant of grace. And so the covenant of grace is a covenant based on and flows out of the covenant of redemption between God and his elect. And so um, the substance of that covenant, if you're in Genesis 2 still, turn to Genesis 3.15. So here's the substance of what God communicates for the covenant of grace. Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So this covenant of grace, then, from there, is played out in Scripture through the repetition and the further explanation of the covenant of grace in various ways and at various times. So that Adamic covenant is explained more to Noah because what we read in Genesis 3.15 is about the seed of the woman. And just recently, Pastor Kimbrough even mentioned this. Um, When Cain was born, Eve says, Behold, the man comma, the Lord. Now, the, the King James, the man from the Lord. But the Hebrew says, behold, the man, the Lord. Like Eve thought, well, this is the seed. God said I was going to have a seed, and here, here he is. Well, you don't read too many verses later to realize, eh, wrong seed. Uh, this is not the one. Um, this is a bad dude. All right, so that's not the one God promised. Well, when you come to Noah, Noah had three sons. And so where is this seed? And we'll look at this next week. And the genealogies in Genesis chapter 5 are very interesting and very important to pay attention to because the genealogy, I'm sorry, Genesis 11, 10 or 11, after the flood, um, the genealogies of Ham and Japheth, they just stop. But the Bible continues to trace on the genealogy of Shem because God said that this Redeemer would dwell in the tents of Shem. And so God perpetuates that genealogy until you come to Shem's descendants, and here's this man in Genesis 12 named Abraham. And then God deals with Abraham, and all these descendants are very specifically traced all through the scriptures, all the way you get eventually to David and Christ, and you come to the New Testament and the genealogies in Matthew and the genealogies in Luke, and one traces all the way to Abraham, the other one traces all the way to Adam, showing that Christ is the seed, right, the, the one. And, and that's the framework of how God has put out these covenants. And so when we talk about the Noahican, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, even the New Covenant, it really is not a new covenant in any way at all. It is further explanation, it's more detail of what God has already said in Genesis 3.15. Pardon the pun, but Genesis 3.15 is the seed of the seed. It's the seed promise. And the rest of these covenants are the budding of the flower of who this seed would be and what this seed would do. And so that's covenant theology in, in a nutshell. There's obviously far more. 
to explain of, of all the particular details through here, but um, that's a primer. So next week what we'll do is we'll come more specifically to look at Genesis 3.15, and that that I very briefly outlined there through Noah and Shem and, and all the rest, all the way through to the Gospels, uh, we'll flesh that out in the next two Sundays and see how these covenants all fit together and how, how the whole framework of Scripture in that perspective is very unified of how God has dealt with humanity and in Adam and in Christ. So hopefully this will be very helpful and beneficial to us all. So let's close in prayer here. We'll be finished this morning. Our Father, we do thank you for your word that you've given to us. We thank you that you have revealed yourself and you have revealed your truth. And we pray that you would increase our understanding in what you have told us and what it is to be in Christ, what it is to be saved from our sins, what it is to be justified and right uh, before you and have that perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith alone. We pray that you'll bless our service this morning. Be with Pastor Bannister as he preaches. We pray that you'll help us in our singing and that every aspect of our service would be for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.